This is Very Serious, the podcast. Interest rates have been rising a lot. The yield on a 10-year Treasury bond is 3.21% as we tape this show in mid-June. That's up from as little as half a percent in the summer of 2020. And that means mortgage rates are through the roof, too. The average rate on a new 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is just over 6%, according to Mortgage News Daily. Higher rates mean homes are less affordable. It's taking some of the gas out of what's been an insane housing market. But it's not just housing. Higher interest rates mean more expensive car loans. They mean it's more expensive for businesses to expand and advance. And they mean it's more expensive for the government to run budget deficits. The era where it seemed the government could spend and borrow and spend and borrow with no economic consequence is over. Interest rates can seem technical and boring, but this shift is going to change our lives in a lot of ways. If you're under 40, you've lived your whole life through one long cycle of falling interest rates. Occasionally they've gone up, but mostly they've gone down, down, down. So are the rising rates going to stick? And what is that going to mean for all of us? To talk about that, I'm joined by financial economist Allison Schrager. Allison is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, which is a conservative think tank based in New York City. Her research focuses on public finance, pensions, tax policy, labor markets, and monetary policy. She's also the author of An Economist Walks Into a Brothel, and she's the co-founder of Lifecycle Finance Partners, LLC, which is a risk advisory firm. And she wrote last week that rising rates mean we can no longer have certain nice things, that this environment is going to force us to choose what's really worth paying for and what we're willing to give up. Hi, Allison. Hi, thanks for having me. So what are the nice things we can no longer have? Well, in that spirit, I don't know if you saw Derek Thompson's recent story in The Atlantic. Yes. I was hoping you'd bring this up. It's a perfect example. So low rates not only meant that we could have cheaper mortgages, but they also bankrolled all this private equity and venture capital investment in Silicon Valley, which meant they were quite happy to fund Uber to take a loss every year. And or even very low interest rates meant Netflix could take on a ridiculous amount of debt. I mean, people forget they were in junk bond territory right before the pandemic to produce all of that content. So we weren't really paying the full price of the of our Ubers. We were getting a lot of content we weren't paying for. And with rising rates, I think there's a good reason to think all of that nice stuff is going to go away. It's funny what what you described there. This is a very real phenomenon where it wasn't just in the public sector where it was like, well, it's so cheap to borrow. It doesn't really matter what the government spends the money on. Just get the money out the door. You saw that same spirit in in a lot of parts of the private sector. That never made sense, even in the low rate environment. It's like low interest rates mean that you, you have very little interest cost for those things, but you still have to pay the principal. Like at Uber, you still had to pay the payments out to the drivers, which often exceeded what you were collecting from the customers. You were losing money on it. A business that cannot make money is still unprofitable, even in a zero rate environment. So I, I agree that like people are being shaken up out of that. They're realizing, oh, we really can't do this. But those models never made any sense to me. I found that really strange, even in the low rate environment, that businesses and investors behave that way. So for me, and I think you're sympathetic to this, I, I have the same weird fixation with public sector pensions, and I think everything comes back to them. <laughs> um. <laughs> to, to lay this out for people who, unlike Allison and me, have never worked on public sector pension analysis and are not obsessed with this, this niche issue. Basically, you know, the, the way a pension fund works is you're supposed to put some money in it now and you invest it and it produces a return. It allows you to pay out benefits to the participants in a pension fund that are well above what was ever contributed on their behalf to begin with. And so it used to be, you know, you go back to the 1970s or something, you say, well, you put money 60% in stocks, 40% in bonds 
bonds. The stocks return 10% a year. The bonds return 4% a year. That gets you 8%. And you know, we can all we can all leave the office at five and go home and, th- and that math adds up. And then as interest rates fell and fell and fell and fell, and you could not get 4% on the bonds, and also the stock returns, it was less clear whether you could really expect that 10%. They had to look for more and more exotic things to put the money in to produce higher investment returns, because otherwise they were going to have to stick more money in the fund, which isn't fun. You have to hit up taxpayers for more money. And so it drove some of what Allison's describing there, the search for yield, basically, can we get money into private equity and venture capital and other things and say this is going to return 14 or 16% a year? And so you did have that that's part of what drove this like effort to find really high growth, you know, what is the next Google kind of thing. And so that phenomenon is real. It just never made sense to me that the thing that was supposed to be the next hot thing was something that had a business model where they lost money on every transaction. It's like, yeah, you get revenue growth, but that's not going to make you money in the long run, no matter how fast the revenue grows. In fact, the more revenue growth you have, the more money you lose. So I, you know, I, I understand the search for yield and how it was created by the low interest rate environment, which we'll talk about in a moment. But it, it still never made sense to me that the, the markets for so long tolerated this stuff that could not make money in any interest rate environment. It reminds me of that. Do you remember in the 80s, Saturday Night Live had a skit where a bank just made change? Yes. And everyone was like, how do they make money? And they're like, volume. Volume. <laughs> so it, it was sort of like that. I think there was a hope. I mean, I think Derek argues quite well that you know, they thought if they got a large market share, eventually maybe they could jack up prices and keep that market share. I mean, maybe that was the hope there. Or as I said, or this sort of night, I think honestly never really made much sense to me. I always would think of that skit. Like, I think they're just thinking volume will actually, if they lose (laughs) money on every single person, but eventually have enough people that negative will be negative. No, no, (laughs) that's not how it works. (laughs) Yeah. So let's talk about how this relates to interest rates, because I I feel like people don't draw these connections directly, necessarily. It wasn't just pension funds. You had all sorts of investors who, you know, you'd have negative real returns on bonds uh, because interest rates were so low. And you had people searching for what's the thing I can put my money in and actually get some return back for it. And so it's it, it created this bias in the private markets toward high growth businesses. And at the extreme end to really nonsense investments, meme stocks, you know, can I put my money in GameStop and AMC and see that go to the moon? And so I, it's not a coincidence, right, that we're in this environment where interest rates have risen sharply and the bottom is falling out of the crypto market, out of certain meme stocks. Is it basically like higher rates mean that you get more return on normal things, including even bonds, and therefore there's less reason for people to put money in weird stuff? I mean, I guess, although I wouldn't say these are very high rates right now, considering they're still much lower than inflation. So I I think they're still actually quite low when you account for that. The the way I think about it is, I mean, people don't like to think about bonds, particularly safe bonds very much, but they really are the entire foundation of finance. You know, they're how everything is priced. And instead, you not only have return targets and search for yield, but they're also how you measure and think about risk. So those are much too low, like your whole sort of risk, like sort of North Star is off. So how should people think about that? Because as, as you know, nominal interest rates have gone up a lot, but inflation is also really high. So the interest rate on a short-term bond right now is sharply negative, uh, interest, the real interest rate, because inflation's over 8%. Uh, if you have the, the Fed funds rate in the, in the 2% range, that's almost like negative 5 negative 6%. But for longer-term bonds, we're seeing what are expected to be positive rates, right? Because like, or, or longer-term loans, like if you take out a, a 6% mortgage, inflation's over 
6% this year, but it's not expected to be over 6% for the life of the loan. So are, am, I, am I right in looking at this and saying that you know, the, the expectations that are built into the market are that interest rates are going to be higher in real terms in the future than we've been experiencing? Yeah, I mean, I think rates are going to be higher. Not only, I mean, I guess we could debate whether or not, I think inflation is definitely not going to stay above 8% forever. But I think there are reasons to worry it could be 3 4% going forward long term mm-hmm. rather than 2 sub 2. And also, I mean, rates got so low for a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, there wasn't just Fed policy. It was also a lot of foreign governments wanted to buy our debt. So there was a lot of demand for our assets. And I think there's reasons to be concerned that they, you know, they'll still buy debt, but maybe not as much as they used to. And also, if inflation, again, for a lot of structural reasons, does end up being about 3 4% going forward, both of those would contribute to sort of longer um higher rates on long yield, on long-term bonds. We might not ever see 2.5% mortgage, 30-year mortgages again. Yeah. I mean, one, one thing you say in your piece is don't get an adjustable rate mortgage out of the hope that like mortgage rates are going to renormalize below 3%. Uh, that's, you know, I mean, I, my husband and I bought a house in 2019. We have a 30-year fixed rate mortgage at two and three quarters, which I'm, you know, pretty smug about, frankly, at this point. Me too. Um, I, I, I bought two. And I, 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 I bring it up to everyone. I bought in spring of 2021. Or I closed okay. that. Yeah. And so you also locked in a low rate, but not one that you would expect people to be able to replicate anytime soon. No, I, I think I can never afford to move. <laughs> Another reason that interest rates fell for so long, right, had to do with fundamentals about economic growth, right? That like slowing population growth uh, and what appeared to be a slowing of productivity growth. Basically, the, the, the reason that you even have interest rates is that, you know, it's basically a trade between money now and money later, capital now and capital later. And interest rates should be high if it's really much more desirable to be able to buy something now than to buy it later. For example, if businesses really want to invest and grow, if they think the, you know, the, the economy is going to be a lot bigger in the future, then that should push interest rates up because everyone's trying to borrow money to build something productive because they'll make more money on it later. And it was this sort of stagnation in the economy, in the global economy, was one of these drivers of lower interest rates that really it wasn't that compelling to be able to invest right now. So there wasn't as much demand to borrow and there was more demand to save, that pushes interest rates down. Is some of what we're seeing that reversing? I mean, I, I, what we see in the U.S. economy right now, uh, part of what's driving the inflation is there's you know really strong consumer demand. Businesses are trying really hard to hire and finding it difficult. They want to be able to expand their businesses because there's a lot of customers out there willing to buy stuff. Th- that's a fundamental that should push interest rates up. And that's, like a re- that's a relatively positive story. It's about interest rates are rising because there's demand for capital. I mean, I hope so. I hadn't honestly really thought of it. Uh, you know, I wasn't. I mean, that's the very sort of macroeconomics way of thinking about it. And I, I think that that's a nice way to think about it. Although when I think about that, I think of sort of more long term. Like, are people right. sort of betting on the U.S. economy and sort of think there's going to be innovations that are going to make them more productive? And you know, maybe I, I'm not really clear on that, but I, I would like to think so. I think the other thing. You know, it, it, I think like a financial economist is a lot less sexy is that there was also a lot of regulations that encouraged financial firms to hold a lot of fixed income and that also just increased demand on it. And they weren't holding a lot of bonds because they wanted to, but just because they had to. We have a question from a listener. Chris Webster uh, wants to know about house prices. I mean, you, you referenced thinking you may not ever be able to afford to move because you can't get a mortgage as cheap as the one you have right now. We are starting to finally see the the housing market cool off a little bit which I'm, I'm actually surprised it hasn't cooled off more given how much more expensive it has become to borrow a, a given amount of mortgage debt for a house. He wants to know, 
can we expect that that slowing to become more meaningful? Um, does, he asked, is anyone forecasting nominal house price depreciation in the next five years? Because I mean, the, the run up in prices we've had over the last couple of years is sustainable. I guess prices could stop rising. And if inflation is fairly high, then you could get significant real reductions in house prices. But is there reason to think that home prices might actually start falling in nominal terms as we have this reset with significantly higher interest rates? Yeah, I think with mortgage rates sort of doubling in a year, uh, I don't see how they couldn't. Again, going to humble brag about my uh, apartment purchase, um, <laughs> which I bought is it a year ago in Greenwich Village. I got a small two bedroom. Right now, my budget with the mortgage rates, what they are, could buy a studio. I mean, New York's <laughs> also a weird market, but you also had this huge just jump in people doing things like moving to Boise. So you saw their housing market just go on fire. And it's hard to see how that's going to be sustainable. But I'm not worried that it's going to be like a 2008 situation where it's just like a run up of prices, it pops and it just decimates household portfolios. People aren't nearly as lever. They've got more fixed rate mortgages this time. And I don't think it's going to be as big a drop as then. Yeah, that's a really key distinction that I think a lot of people have not zoomed in on. It's both like people, they just don't have as much household debt. Balance sheets are actually in great shape right now, which is part of why it's been hard to defeat inflation because households, they have plenty of money. The labor market is good. And so people are not that afraid of losing their jobs. And so that's feeling spending. But it also means they have some room for some cushion if the price of their homes falls. And as you know, some of the riskier mortgage practices that were very prevalent uh, in 2005, 2006 have just gone away. So you even if your home falls in value, you have that fixed rate mortgage that you locked in at a relatively low rate. And so long as you don't actually have to move, uh, that sort of locks in some more affordability for people in, in their existing homes. So that's, that's, a, that's a relatively happy story there. One other thing, though, that makes me wonder about the, the extent to which we'll see home price moderation is that I think there's been a real shock to demand for residential real estate, which is to say, you have a lot of people who've had a semi-permanent shift toward more work from home. And those people just want more residential real estate. You know, someone who was happily living in a one bedroom with their spouse and no children now needs a two bedroom because they need a home office because they're home all the time and they're constantly in each other's hair. And you see that up and down the size spectrum. And that that's something that could be persistent in the face of interest rates, right? If there's like an, a real change in the way we use real estate, that could lead to, you know, a, a persistent change in price. Yeah, although I think that's going to equilibrate at some point. And people who, you know, I mean, how many more times can people move and move to bigger spaces? I mean, if we really... Right, are, but it could settle, it could equilibrate at a higher level than we were at pre-pandemic. Yeah, for sure. And as I said, like a house in Boise is going to be just permanently higher because there's just going to be a lot more people who want to live there or even people who graduate college and think this is where I can go. You wrote a few months back that Americans need to live more like Europeans. Uh, one, one stat you had was that consumption per capita grew 65% in the US from 1990 to 2015. It only grew 35% in Europe. Uh, household consumption is only about half of GDP in Germany. It's, I don't have the number in front of me. It's a lot more than half in the United States. That's bad, right? Like It's, it's, it's good that we got 65% gain in consumption over that period. That's better in 35, than 35%. That means higher standards of living. We have much better household appliances than they have in Europe. The, the washing machines in Europe don't really get your clothes dry. So, like, I mean, you seem to be celebrating this trend, it seems, and, and I assume this is a trend that will be accelerated by the higher interest rates. Part of what was financing Americans' ability to consume like this was be, being able to get very cheap debt. This seems like a, a, a negative story if people are going to have to trim their sales and consume less. 
Well, you know, there's good and there's bad. I mean, you'd never want a good big drop in living standards. I was, I was speaking more to sort of just a lot of consumption, like people having three refrigerators. The fact that even people who, who, who are in the bottom 25th percentile have like three flat screen TVs per household. And, and I mean, I guess it was that romantic, although a lot of Europeans pointed out to me that they also consume a lot of crap now too. So yeah. I think it might have been- Flat screen my... TVs are really cheap now. I don't know why you shouldn't have three per household. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, I guess more for environmental reasons. I mean, it is kind of just feels wasteful to me. But that's true. They're, they have gotten really cheap. They're cheaper than like those old big like tube yeah. TVs used to be. You say in that piece that basically long-term sustainable growth doesn't come from going to debt to buy stuff we don't really need. It comes from technology and innovation. Doesn't strong consumer demand drive technology and innovation? Because I mean, I, I feel like one of the positive trends we've seen in the economy over the last couple of years, one thing that's been good about the the economy running up against these constraints, and obviously there's been all these bad things. There are shortages on shelves and people are really frustrated. Uh, it's been a driver of inflation. You end up having to you know wait in line for things. But a plus side is it's really pushed businesses to find ways to be more productive, find ways to do more with less labor. You see this even in the restaurant industry, typically a really low-tech industry. Changes in the ways that restaurants operate, where where you get you know, more uh, fast casual service where you order at a counter and you sit down and someone brings something to you. Or I know nobody likes a QR code, but uh, things where you order on your phone or you pay your check on your phone, and that means the waiter comes to your table fewer times than previously. This is basically restaurants finding a way to do the same amount of service with less labor. We see this all throughout the economy, um, and it's a reaction to the fact that consumers really want to buy more stuff than businesses can provide them. They need to find ways to get more productive. It seems like the, the driver of that innovation is the strong consumer demand. Don't those go hand in hand? They do. But I think what I was trying to say is yeah, there's good consumption demand and bad consumption demand. Like, you know, as I said, like your third refrigerator, especially, you know, maybe it's as cheap as TVs are, you know, if you're a low-income household, three is still a lot. So what really has driven, and what has, I think it's really notable about the U.S. economy is Amar Bidet, like 10 years ago, wrote a book saying what really made the U.S. economy special, what really made it grow was consumption demand. But it wasn't just consumption demand. It was a very sort of particular kind of consumption demand and that Americans are exceptionally open to new things and trying new things. And sort of if you want to try out a new product, this is the best market to do it. So I celebrate that. I, I think I'm just more worried about, as I said, sort of just sort of lower quality consumption demand of just sort of like buying a lot of low quality stuff. And I would like to see more of the sort of openness to new technology and productivity. Does that go against your belief in efficient markets? Like if consumers are reaching for the, you know, the lower quality stuff, which is presumably cheaper, why do you assume they're wrong? I mean, I don't know if they're wrong. I mean, as this, again, like, I guess I, I, I'm thinking again, like a woman who makes a lot of like bad purchases of cheap garments and then never wears them. Um, <laughs> it's my own bias, which I'm projecting on everyone, which is probably not fair. Um, and as I said, it is wasteful. So, I mean, as I said, if we care about the environment, as I said, I mean, I don't know if it's really in a violation of efficient markets because, you know, as I said, we're all guilty of sort of impulse purchases and things are sort of marketed in a way that makes that appealing. You raise the environmental impact. So there's externalities that might be created by people's purchases of certain things. Can the market structure be fixed to improve that? Do we need taxes on certain things to save consumers from themselves in these purchases? I mean, perhaps. I, I hate to say save them for themselves because I'm too much of a libertarian to sort of... I, I, I'm just sort of reading an article judging people, but I'm not like wanting policies to tell people to stop shopping at H&M, uh, you know, if, if that's your joy. But, you know, I would like people to sort of maybe as well be more thoughtful and, uh, you know, buy things that they really love 
more than things that just sort of feel good in the moment. And you don't even want interest rate policies that push people in that direction? Because it, se- it seemed like in your can't have nice things piece, you were almost celebrating a little bit the fact that this environment where the where capital's more costly will force people to engage in better judgment about what's really important. I mean, and to some extent, that is a policy choice. The Fed doesn't have complete control over what interest rates will be, but they significantly influence. No, they, I mean, and they especially don't have much, I think, as much control as people think, especially around like tenure and above. I mean, I think interest rates should be whatever the market sets them at. And going back to sort of your point of the interest rates reflect how much people want to defer consumption for today versus tomorrow. I think they should be that. I mean, you could also maybe be concerned the fact that interest rates were so low, encourage people to consume more rather than thinking about putting off consumption to the moment. And maybe that also, I never thought of this before, fed some of the sort of need for sort of voracious consumption today. But wherever sort of society puts sort of their rate of deferring consumption tomorrow for today, I think that's where it should be. And that's where people should consume. You also say in that piece that you think the high, high rate environment is going to end what you call the virtue bubble. So first of all, what do you what do you mean by the virtue bubble? Well, the virtue bubble is just this idea that, you know, every single economic transaction we make has to be sort of laden with virtue. We shouldn't invest in companies that, you know, we, we see as non-virtuous, although that's hard to define. We won't buy spices from companies that had anything to do with Donald Trump, or we won't even work for a company that doesn't really reflect our values. And I I feel like somewhat that was all like luxury thinking and with higher rates, all of that becomes a lot more expensive and maybe people pull back. And I don't think that's a bad thing. So as a descriptive matter, I think you're completely correct. I think that people's choices are getting constrained on a number of dimensions. I mean, Kroger, the the grocer, is talking about how people are really aggressively shifting towards store brands, uh, which is a good way to save money uh, at Stop and Shop, which is not a Kroger property. But uh, I was shopping this week, uh, $10.49 a pound for Oscar Mayer bacon, $4.99 a pound for stop and shop brand bacon. I, I like brand loyalty is weird on some of this stuff. It's especially weird for Oscar Mayer, which I don't even think of as an especially good brand. But I think you're definitely seeing people shift that way. And I'm sure that virtue is another one of those dimensions on which people are like, well, all this stuff has gotten so expensive. Maybe I won't pay extra to buy from the company that I think shares my politics. I'm interested in why, why you think it's a good thing to move away from that. Weren't consumers getting utility out of feeling that their purchases were virtuous, uh, feeling that they were, you know, directing their dollars toward people who share their values and maybe on some level encouraging businesses to, to reflect their values? Why would we celebrate that uh, people can no longer afford to do that? Well, it's first of all, inefficient. Well, but that depends on their preferences, right? Yeah. If, if, if you really value it, then it's not inefficient to invest time in doing it. Yeah. Although I don't know how much time people are investing. I think as well, more I'm concerned as well about the ESG market, which I think always opened itself up to being hypocritical. I mean, once you start sort of being virtuous about your consumption, it's hard not to be hypocritical just because so many companies have their fingers in different things. So certainly with ESG, you know, oil companies were considered not ESG friendly, but they're some of the biggest investors in renewables. So, I mean, where, where do your values lie there? I think it's just more efficient. Buy what you want, work where you want, invest in whatever it looks uh, like it's going to have the biggest profits, and then just give that money to charities that support your values. That just seems like cleaner, it less, takes less time, and it really would probably even have a better impact. So ESG is environment, social, and governance-focused investing, uh, which actually uh, I talked about with Matt Levine on, the, on this podcast a few weeks ago. And I mean, you, you referenced there 
part of it is, I, I think, accusations of hypocrisy in ESG, some of which I think are, are valid, some of which I, I think can be overstated. Um, but there's also this, this question that, that, that I discussed with Matt about like what, what even the purpose of ESG is. Is it so that investors can be only in firms or industries that they feel good about their practices? Or is it about trying to influence the behavior of those firms, in which case you, you want to let some oil companies into your ESG fund because oil companies exist and their practices differ on various dimensions. And so you want to be able to say, if you're one of the better oil companies, we'll invest in you and not in the oil company we think is worse, rather than staying away from the industry entirely, in which case you have no influence whatsoever over, over its practices. And so I guess that, I mean, first of all, that, that goes back again to what the preferences held by the investors are there. I mean, I guess one question is, is this actually effective at influencing corporate behavior? But if it is, and you know, the reason it would be effective is that your cost of capital is lower if you can get into the ESG-focused funds, because then there are some investors who will only buy into you. If that's affecting corporate behavior, then I don't know that that's necessarily inefficient. I guess partly one question is, are you really reflecting the preferences of the investors? And then we go back to the pension fund thing, where you have pension funds, where you have managers deciding how to invest the funds on behalf of politicians and unions. Uh, but really, the ultimate principle there is the taxpayer um, who is on the hook to make up for whatever does not materialize as investment returns. So you can have, I mean, this is the this is one of the Republican critiques of, e, of ESG, that basically you have these, these entities that are not bearing the ultimate f- financial risk, that are using this as a tool to try to push corporate policy or public policy in a particular direction. I'm less concerned about greenwashing and all of that stuff, but I think it was never really sold accurately as if you constrain what you invest in, you should have a lower return than an unconstrained portfolio. I mean, that's just math. Yet somehow I always felt like ESG was being sold as, oh, and you'll make money too. And that never really made sense to me. I mean, although surprisingly for the last 10 years, ESG funds have outperformed the S&P, but I think that was largely because they became so popular. But now that markets are falling, they're falling by more. And that's what you would expect. This is a funny thing about the effect of, of interest rate changes on investments. I mean, for, for much the same reason what you're describing there with ESG, where basically one of the effects of this run-up in interest rates is you've had a big decline in stock prices. Um, and stock prices are declining for several reasons. There are concerns about whether we're entering recession or that sort of thing. But it's basically like a bond, the, the price and the yield of a stock move in opposite directions. If uh, interest rates are higher, and that means bonds return a higher nominal return, then people also demand a higher return from stocks. The return for a stock is supposed to be linked to the future profits that will be generated by that company. And so if the future profits are unchanged and the demanded yield goes up, that means the stock price has to go down. So that's bad for you if you own the stock right now. But it also means that investors should expect a higher return in coming years than was expected previously, right? That in in a higher rate environment, stocks should should go up by more per year, assuming or should return more per year in a combination of appreciation and, and dividends than you would have expected in the lower rate environment if you hold everything else fixed, and most most importantly, the future profit outlook. So does that that again is a happy story for investors, right? Like stocks went down now, but the expected returns that you should get over the next 10 years are greater than they would have been. Well, I mean, I think it depends. I mean, if, if you said as the market as the whole goes down because rates have gone up, then I think that's true. But as I said, if you have a particular asset class that maybe was overvalued and those prices go down, I hate to say the word overvalued, I'm too much of an efficient market's nut, but you know what I mean. Like, <laughs> um, uh, people were maybe a little too excited about, uh, then no, because you wouldn't expect those returns to be higher in the future. So when you say you're an efficient markets nut, 
this this environment over the last few years has not tested your resolve on that. Like the run up in AMC and GameStop, is that an efficient market? It can be. I mean, if you just if you think How? like, well, could you predict when it was going to end? <sighs> when it was going to end? Yeah, no, but that because in but theory, it, it, efficient markets is just it reflects all information. And information, and, and is it if it would be inefficient if, well, we know it's going to all come crashing down next month, yet people are buying anyway, that would be inefficient. But I think I, I don't think I need to know the exact time it turns, right? For, for a market to be efficient, that basically means that, you know, that all of the information that's available is, is, is priced in, which is to say, I can't systematically say this stock is going to move differently than the rest of the market or mm-hmm. that it's going to move differently than other you know, non-meme stock film exhibitors or whatever. But I, I think my, my view that GameStop was going to fall was systematically correct. Yeah, as I said, but eventually all things fall. I think, I mean, the way you can think about- Well, no, not market- all things fall eventually. Like, you know, the if it's a company that has a good growth picture and is profitable, then the stock price should go up over time. Well, like almost every company has fallen in the last couple well, months. Right, but that's, I mean, all things fall when, the, when, when you're in a bear market, mm-hmm. or almost all things fall. But I don't, I mean, AMC didn't fall merely because we're in a, Bear market. I mean, AMC has fallen because it's the the, the stock price was untethered from fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, eventually, that's it. Eventually, all things do. I mean, I definitely thought it was overpriced. It didn't test my resolve with efficient markets for a couple of reasons. One, I didn't feel like I knew exactly when it would happen. And two, I think of efficient markets as well as more of an equilibrium condition. So therefore, you can have deviations from the equilibrium. Like things happen. You get investors who are bored at home with too much money and like they do weird things. But that doesn't mean efficient markets isn't a good equilibrium condition. Isn't that a conclusory definition, though, that basically like, you know, markets are efficient and whenever whenever they're not, that just means we're out of the efficient equilibrium condition. It seems like that you could use that to describe absolutely any market. Well, I think they're broadly efficient, but you can have as well. Usually when you have violations of it, it is for sort of individual stocks, particularly IPOs. IPOs tend not to conform to efficient markets. So you do have these weird little pricing anomalies. But if you are investing and you're an individual and you're an individual retail investor investing for the long term, I think accepting efficient markets and just saying, I can't predict this stuff is sort of a good way to think. Do these anomalies matter? And I, and I don't just mean the meme stocks. I, I, I'm actually I'm referring in large part to the crypto market here because we had this bubble. I, I know you don't love the word bubble, but we had this home price bubble in the 2000s uh, that you know, that peaked in 2007 and it popped and all these people lost their shirts and it had this this snowballing effect in the economy that led us into this enormous recession. It was, it was a really bad thing. We are quite possibly in the middle of the popping of a crypto bubble right now um, and some and meme stocks and certain other things. It doesn't look to me like there's sort of similar broad risk to the economy from that. So even though, you know, this stuff never made a lot of sense, people were going to lose their shirts. At, at least it's not at least it's more contained for the economy than than the last time. If anything tested my resolve in efficient markets, it was crypto. <laughs> And why is that? Because <laughs> it never made any sense to me. Like I never understood why people were investing in it. And I started to feel like, well, a lot of smart people are, so I must be missing something and I'm just too lazy to make sense of this. So uh, th- th- for a while, I really did doubt myself on that one. I'm just like happy the prices are going down because I hope it goes away so I don't feel compelled to like think about it more. So, th- I mean, there were like, there were four nominal stories I can think of about crypto and, and why it would be worth anything. One was this stuff about, oh, the blockchain technology or Web3 or whatever is really useful. And this underlies, it's not just a speculative asset. This underlies some useful activity in the real economy. And this, it was always theoretically possible that could be true in some instance. I think that might even be true. I still believe 
that. But I just don't think that justified it being traded as a commodity at that price. Well, but it was always stuff like, oh, like we'll use it for fair trade bananas because we'll put on the blockchain that the bananas were fair trade. And then everyone will know because you can't change what's on the blockchain. Like that's true. But wherever the bananas are harvested, you can have someone put a fraudulent entry in the blockchain. Yeah. And like, you know, the, it, it, you can't change the entry, but that doesn't mean it was, tr- it, it always, it always seemed like those stories were like a cover for like, really, we're, we're doing a speculative asset, but we don't want to say that. So here, you know, mumble, mumble, web three, this is, you know, this is going to change the way technology works. At least people have stopped saying it's a good hedge for inflation. Yes. Yeah. So the, that never made sense to me. And there were claims that like this was going to replace the dollar, that basically the reason it's valuable is that it's the new store of value. And as you know, like the idea was it's it, the the Fed is inflating the hell out of the dollar and this thing is much more stable. Now, of course, what we see is, is crypto prices are in fact much more volatile. A third more plausible thing that people wouldn't say out loud, but I think was true, is that like illegal transactions, it was somewhat useful for for facilitating those. And so that's something that could produce sustainable value, although both that's not great morally. And also you have significant policy risk. The government is going to find ways to stop you from doing that. And in fact, we've seen in a number of investigations in everything from like drugs to child pornography, that crypto is not nearly as anonymous as people thought it was. And the government's been able to use the blockchain to figure out who did various transactions. So maybe it's not as useful for illegal transactions as, as people thought. And then the fourth was basically that, oh, it's, you know, fun, speculative stuff. Uh, you know, I'll just figure out how to get out before it, before it starts dropping. Um, and I think there was a lot of that, but now we're, we're seeing how that, that ends in tears and pain. And so I've been, I've been hopeful that, that, that this is the, that we're finally starting to see not just a decline in price for crypto, but the, a decline in the amount that I have to think and talk about it. Um, but none of none of those stories, except maybe the one about illegal transactions, really fits in with the idea that the crypto market was efficient. Yeah. And in fact, uh, for once for a story, I spent a lot of time on um, Reddit talking to internet drug dealers. And they, <laughs> they, they, they did not enjoy having to transact in crypto. It was a nightmare for them. Because I mean, because when you buy drugs on the internet, or on the on the dark web. I don't know if people still do it because there's crackdown on it since then. But so you buy your drugs and they sit in escrow for two weeks while the person who bought the drugs uses them and confirms that they are what they wanted. But you can imagine that two weeks in escrow, like with the volatility of crypto, like would wipe out all their yeah. profits. It was awful. Apparently, the original uh, Silk Road had a swap option you could buy if you were a dealer. Um, but the uh, later generation of bazaars did not offer this. So this is when I became very skeptical of crypto because I was like, even the people who have a justified reason for using it hate it. Well, and also, I mean, with swap products like that, I mean, a swap is a, is a contract with someone who you have to trust to be solvent to actually make good on it. Wasn't that kind of just early now that we think about it, early uh, incarnations of stablecoin? Yes. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, that's what a stablecoin is, is basically saying, here's a thing that's a crypto token, but it's going to be worth a dollar. We really, really promise that, but it's... It ends up it's backed by some other crap. I mean, like the Terra USD thing, it was like, oh, we invented this other coin and it's as many of those coins as is necessary to, to produce a dollar. And so you get a Zimbabwe style hyperinflation where they have to keep minting more and more of those coins to try to keep up. But of course, that causes the thing to become completely valueless. You also have other things that are backed by more real type assets, but they're basically they're behaving like banks that aren't regulated as banks. And so they're issuing loans, essentially, as the thing that backs the stablecoin they issued. And the problem is, it's like any bank, the loan can go bad. Uh, but it's not like any bank because they have way less capital than a bank has. So they're way more vulnerable uh, to uh, the if the, the value of the portfolio goes down a little bit, the bank can be insolvent. And then your, your swap contract or whatever does not get made good on. 
It's sort of sweet. It's like all these people are rediscovering banking and currency, that, all these <laughs> lessons we all learned in the 1880s. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it was the, there was, uh, what, what's the, there's some hedge fund that went to an all crypto strategy and then the, their counterparties figured out this week that they couldn't make their margin calls because they were just like really long crypto and levered on it. And it turns out if crypto prices fall a lot, that causes you to become insolvent. And then all these people are like, well, but where's, you know, where's my money in this contract that we had? It's like, yeah, well, that's, that's why we have banks and bank regulation. Uh, so there's rules to make sure that the bank actually has the ability to make good on, you know, the ability to return your deposit or, or whatever it is. So, I mean, this is, this is funny, and we, we think it's probably not going to have a lot of big negative impact on the broader real economy, which is why it's funny. How sanguine are you overall about the, the outlook for the next few years? I mean, Ben Hush, uh, a reader, wrote in to ask about inflation over 8%. Um, we had the brief COVID recession and then the rapid recovery out of it, part of what has driven that inflation. And now you have the Fed and other central banks around the world trying to engineer a soft landing, uh, where we're going to cool the economy without freezing it, get inflation down, not push unemployment up too much, uh, and hopefully not push the economy into recession. What do you think the likelihood is of, of that happening? I mean, I think it's definitely possible. I, I don't see a good way out. I mean, maybe we won't even have a recession. Maybe we'll just have anemic growth. But people are already hurting a lot. Like if you're having negative real wage growth, I mean, it feels like a recession to you. And I think that's why a lot of people think we're in one anyway. We're not technically. And I mean, there's no good way out of high inflation. Uh, the one exception being, I guess, you know, in the, from the late 90s on, because we traded a lot with China, it sort of prices slowly came down. And that was what they call opportunistic disinflation. But the odds that we're going to sort of all of a sudden start trading with a billion new people in the next couple of years is low. So I don't see a good ending. I, I'm, I'm always optimistic about the US economy. And I am five years from now. But I think it's I don't think it's going to be the next couple of years are going to be fun for anyone. I think they're going to be hard. I mean, I in some ways, I don't think it's going to be like bad, like 2008 recession bad, because I think, as you pointed out earlier, households and corporations are coming in with fairly strong balance sheets. So in some ways, we're pretty resilient, which is really like bad things happen to the economy. You have recessions, stock market falls. The test of an economy isn't whether or not bad things happen is how resilient you are to them. And I think we're in shape to be fairly resilient, but there's going to be some pain. I guess the one you're talking about, you know, we're probably not going to get a big positive external shock of the one like that you're describing there with the China trade in the 90s. Um, I mean, I and guess some people don't see that as positive, I guess. No. You know, a lot of people lost their jobs, but yeah. Right. Um, but so what, I mean, I, we've had a couple of really significant negative external shocks in the last year. One is the, the war in Ukraine, which has had huge impacts on food and fuel prices. Um, and as part of, no one wants to say the word transitory anymore, but there was this hope that the COVID-driven inflation was fading, and then it got punched in the face by this external event that just like drastically pushed up oil prices and, and food prices also very substantially. And then also you've had lockdowns in China, China's, you know, real struggle to return to a global trading system uh, in a way that is in line with their COVID policies. In theory, either of those things could ease and then that, you know, the, the, the removal of a negative shock is a positive shock. So, I mean, that, that could be one thing that would be significantly disinflationary. Yeah. So I said, that's why I think inflation is not still going to be above 8%. But I think there are reasons to worry. We could be settling into a 3 or 4% environment. And that is largely driven that, you know, even if China gets past COVID, there's still challenges. Where our, dependent, our economy is very tied up in China. And they're aging. And they've got their issues. 
I mean, they certainly have some uh, frothy things going on in their economy. So I I think there's concern about them continuing to be the world's factory and we don't have another replacement waiting in the wings. So I think this means, again, 4% inflation isn't nothing. I mean, for a lot of time, economists and uh, commentators were like, it wouldn't be great if the inflation target was four, but that is still twice as much of what we had before. It won't be damaging to the economy. I think uncertainty around inflation is more often more damaging than the level, so long as the level isn't super high. But it is higher rates. It is well, I mean, higher raises you need. Jason Furman, for example, has been saying let's let's reset the inflation target at three. I mean, one of the one of the concerns about the inflation target that was two, and then we often weren't hitting it, was that when the, when the economy is weak, one of the ways the Fed responds to that to support the economy is by cutting interest rates. It's very it's very difficult practically to cut them lower than zero. If you have a higher inflation target, that gives you more room to get real interest rates that are more negative. So I mean, that's that, that's been an argument that it's, it it wouldn't be merely okay to reset the inflation target higher. That's a reason it might be desirable. Do you share that view? Well, I would have been okay if we started with three. Like, I didn't have a, well, like, when we start inflation targeting, if we went with three, if we went for two, if we went with four, I could have been okay with all of those. It's more that I think it's a huge blow to credibility. We had it for two, we could never get it to two, then inflation took off, and we can't get it down to two now, so we're just going to go with three. I think it's a blow to credibility, and I think it should make us rethink inflation targeting. But I think the concept of having a 3% inflation economy, as long as it's predictable and consistent, I don't think is bad in of itself. And the other advantage of it is if people are typically getting 3% pay increases and then you have a recession and they stop having to give people pay increases, you can actually cut wages. Firms never want to actually explicitly cut nominal wages because it ruins morale. But if you ha- you're in a higher inflation environment going in and you just stop cutting wages, you can have these sort of backdoor wage cuts, which saves layoffs. That sounds awful. But the, the idea basically is that in, in a recession, you often have a choice between reductions in real wages or reductions in the quantity of employment. And you would rather have modest real wage declines for everyone than have a lot more layoffs, which have more negative impacts both on the economy and on individual households. Why don't we leave that there? Alison Schrager, I, I want to thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you. If you'd like to be the first to know about our upcoming podcast topics and suggest questions for my guests, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious Newsletter. It's at joshbarrow.com. You'll find discussion threads about this and our other podcast episodes there. Uh, And that's a feature that's only open to paying subscribers. So if you're not one already, please consider supporting the Very Serious Podcast and newsletter as a paying subscriber. Your subscription directly funds this podcast and makes it possible. We'd also like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo like mayonnaise. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and by Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week. <laughs>